is Trish, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Casey, Hello. and two amazing guests that we have today. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hey, I'm Tarlin Hadidi. Matthew Delaney. So today we're going to talk about a situation that I definitely found myself in when I was a med student. I think we probably all have experienced at some point, but you're in the middle of a busy shift and the next patient that's up to see you take a look at the chief complaint and you realize that getting a history from this person is definitely not going to be like it usually is or like it was in med school or like it was taught to you and you know that it's going to be a little bit more challenging. I wanted to talk today about some of the challenging situations and how we navigate those as students and then how we navigate them as residents and attendings as well. So a couple of the challenging situations that I had thought about when we were coming up with ideas was your patient with altered mental status, your patient with dementia or delirium, any acutely agitated patient, whether psychosis or other reasons, whether they've got hearing impairment, suicidal, homicidal ideation. So as I was listing off some of those things, what are some of the thoughts that are going on in your head as you're thinking about these different challenging situations? I think up top, one of the things that jumps out to me is this idea that it's difficult to get a history. And, and often I will come out of rooms and be like, they're a bad historian. And the honest answer is that I am not great at getting a history in those situations. And if you think about all the patients we see, most of the patients you can get sort of a history. There is a subset of patients where really you can't get the history. But I would say anytime your first reaction is this is going to be a difficult history, pause, double down. I kind of go with the high energy with these patients. Oh, tell me more. Tell me more. Get them pumped up. But if, if that doesn't work, I, I think that works 90% of the time. And then we're, today we're really talking about that 10% of patients where we just can't get the information. That's not an us problem. It's a temporary problem in, in terms of them giving us that information. Yeah. I mean, I love that acknowledging your own sort of potential bias of going into the room and pigeonholing the patient as a poor historian and then forcing yourself to, like you said, double down and work with kind of what you have available to try to tease out that history. That scenario is an M&M in the making, I feel like, most of the time. And so sometimes that can be just my goal is I want to avoid an M&M with this patient. What can I do to make sure I get the, the story out of them? I think that's a huge tip that if you're walking into a room thinking something is going to prevent me from getting a history, that's a high-risk patient. In my mind, that's a patient that's essentially like somebody back in the resuscitation bay. That's like a cardiac arrest because, again, we can do some stuff, but we have really little to no idea why you showed up, what's going on. Yep. It's so accurate. <clears throat> you guys are spot on. Tarlin, you're, you're after my own heart. It's one of those where I don't like getting the emails later. I think the same thing when I approach those patients. And this is the way that I think about it. So we talk about, you probably have heard as a medical student, there are no bad historians, just bad history takers. And that's a little of a white lie, right? There actually are bad historians. There are patients that will attempt to deceive you, provide you with the wrong history for whatever reason. But the reason we tell you that is to ensure that you have done your own due diligence. When you are attempting to obtain one of those histories and you just go in with this idea of, well, there won't be any history, then garbage in, garbage out. That's that's how your history is going to go because you're not going to put in the effort. If you go into it with that idea of, I, I know this is going to be harder, and what you want to do is clutch the deal later because oftentimes these are patients that are going to be admitted. 
if you can clutch the deal when you're talking to your consultant, whether it's another resident, whether it's a, an attending, whoever it may be, with when the first thing they fire back with is, well, what kind of do you not have any more? When you can say, well, the 15 things that I've attempted to do to get you more of a history have all failed, but I did take those steps. It tends to get them to ease up off of the pressure a little bit and understand that you really have tried. One of the things that I'm bad about doing that I think I've never regretted forcing myself to do is get up from the desk and talk to anybody I can. Talk to EMS. If you see in the comments that the niece has a phone number, that's not typically there for no reason. Someone is concerned. Your nurses, your techs. I've been bailed up by environmental services. They're like, oh, you want to talk to the guy that brought this guy? Yes, you want to talk to that guy. That's that's the piece of the puzzle that's there. And so I get it on a busy shift. That's a real pain to track down family members or, or EMS out in the ambulance bay. That saved my butt many, many times, just forcing myself to get all the information I can. You guys all bring up really great points. And I think one of the things that is difficult is, John, like you were saying, knowing what are those 15 things? What tools do I have in my tool bag? One of them being getting that collateral history to better gain that history or what things can you try? Because ultimately, I think it's not necessarily something that we're initially taught. So if we break it down, what tips and tricks do you guys have for some of these patients that we're seeing that we're having a harder time getting history from? For me, it's always the kind of why today. And that's in a patient that can give you some answer. You know, if someone's got long-term schizophrenia and substance abuse, they've been there 20 times, their why today may just be that that's one of the days that they check in. But for a lot of people, even people who have significant dementia, delirium, you know, this is still a notable event for them. So I really try to focus on the why are you here today And then I'll also chart in very plain English what I'm seeing. Patients confused. They're trying to eat the blanket. They tell me that they think Roosevelt's the president. Because not only does that paint an accurate picture, if if this is going to go to QI or M&M, I want people to be where I am at that moment. But also it makes me kind of cognitively commit to what I know and what I don't know. And then I can read my own note and be, okay, we're we're really in the woods here. we got to do more tests, get get more information. But um, yeah, I think the what was different today as opposed to yesterday often gets me going in the general right direction. I think knowing that you're going in and you're probably going to spend extra time with this specific patient is also helpful. If I'm going into a room with a patient who has dementia, who's having an acute uh, mental health crisis, who's altered because they're inebriated or, or intoxicated, I know going in that this is going to take more of my time and energy. And so my mindset is that, okay, I'm here and I'm going to stay as long as I need to to extract this information. Sometimes these patients are also cognitively slower. You know, if you're super drunk or super high, it it's hard to kind of get those answers out. And oftentimes we go in and we just start peppering people with questions. What's your name? What's your name? Do you know where you are? What year is it? Who's the president? You know, and you just start kind of... There And we don't give them an opportunity to answer the question because they're not answering it in the time frame that works for us. But sometimes you just have to let the question sit there and maybe ask the same question again rather than asking a different question to try to at least assess where they're at and how much information you're going to be able to get out of them. But going in knowing you're going to be spending extra time with this patient is helpful just for us as providers. In Also adjust your scope of what you want to accomplish. So I want to accomplish, are you 
at the edge of the cliff or are you just in the general area where the cliff might be? And if you're in the general area, then I can check on you more often. I can tell the nurse, hey, monitor this person as if they were restrained or on the vent. And, and then again, it becomes clearer because most of these patients aren't on the edge of the cliff, yet we have to find the few that are. Yeah. So I would expand on a pearl that you gave earlier, which is about EMS. Anybody that works with me or rotates with me knows that I don't just say this. I actually will, other than a critical resuscitation, drop what I'm doing to go to bedside when EMS is giving their report. One of the reasons for that is out of respect for what they do. But the second reason is almost all of these patients, almost all, come by EMS. A few do get brought through the front, but typically someone's good enough to be, wait, who are you and why is this person not talking and can we need a little bit like, who, what's your license plate? Something, right? But the EMS crew, and so knowing the right questions to ask, because one of the things we all do as humans is you think that the person you're talking to has the knowledge inside your head, except for very clear things. So one of the best questions to ask EMS providers that they don't tell you unless you ask most of the time is where did you get this patient from? Because if they were at home, did they call 911? Did someone else call 911? Was this a law enforcement well visit from a cousin in Nebraska? What what happened? How did you, was this person found outside? If they're found outside, don't just let that alone, right? Tell me where they were found. Oh, they were found out by a gas station. Were they near a car? Did they have a car? Did they drive there? Did they not? Digging in on that early on, even though it, it seems to be like, well, this isn't really medicine. Why am I doing this? Because all of those things will help you. One of the coolest cases I ever solved of a who was it was a patient that exactly that had happened. When I started asking the MS crew about what was happening, they were like, well, we found him outside of a laundromat. Oh, Okay. Did he, did he have any clothes with him? Well, no. Were there any cars in the parking lot? Well, now that you mention it, there was. So we ended up finding out later that the police had been called, had found out, found the vehicle, that the vehicle had been towed. They pulled the license plate, were able to get the name of the patient, and then we were able to eventually find out who it was. And the patient had had a stroke and wasn't able to communicate but we found their family member who was completely frazzled because they had no idea what was going on because nobody could put the dots together until we asked those questions. I think one other resource that we sort of think about later is the medical record as well. You know, oftentimes patients go to the same hospital over and over again, even if they're coming by EMS, because EMS will transport them typically to the closest hospital. And so looking back into the chart and seeing what their mental status was before, what their neurologic exam was before, has anybody ever documented anything that could give you a clue as to why getting this history is more challenging today? And then we also document foreign languages. So if they speak a different language, that's in the medical record as well. And so maybe really all you need is an interpreter, but they can't verbalize that to you because they can't tell you that in English. So that might be a good tool to also reach into and to get a, some extra clues. Yeah, this is a little bit of a hot take, but I actually think these are the situations where you want to judge a book by the cover. If you look at somebody and they've got new shoes and a new iPhone and then they're covered in dirt and leaves, that's an unusual series of events with the things that you have with you. And I think of this one case I had where a guy came in and his ankle was big, red, and swollen. And he said, I 
twisted my ankle jogging. And I'll just be honest, he doesn't seem like a guy who jogs. He doesn't seem like a guy who's ever seen someone jog. And I said, but do you, you're jogging? Yeah, I'm training for a race. It doesn't seem like that's the case. I saw some track marks. I said, do you, any history of IV drug abuse? No, because I'm an athlete. I'm training for this jogging race. That was my clue that you don't, I don't think you call it a jogging race. Wow. But so I said, I don't really care what you do or don't do. I just want to make sure you're okay. I'm worried your ankle's infected. And he's like, it's not. But if you need to test it, you can do that. So as I'm pulling pus out of his ankle, he's like, I actually, I'm not a jogger. I use IV drugs. And so that was a situation where we made a snap judgment based on the person in front of us that I don't think what you're saying is necessarily the actual reality. And we kind of lucked into it with this guy. But I think that don't discount if you're getting a weird sense that these pieces don't add up don't be afraid to make a judgment if it's in the name of trying to help a patient and that brings up a good point how do you best communicate that to your resident or your attending without sounding like hey so i saw this guy and you know to to without sounding judgmental i guess so the resident and the attending are going are going to go in and, and see the patient as well. Sometimes patients just need some time to also let their story evolve and to feel comfortable enough to share the story. And it might, because you were the first person to go in, they may not have been quite ready to share the full story. So the opportunity to then give the a different version of the story to the resident, a different version to the attending, that takes time. And I know it's so annoying because when we go in there together and I get a completely different story and there's this sense of like, why didn't you tell me this? And it may not even be that they're intentionally trying to mislead you, although that does happen. Sometimes patients need that chance to let their story kind of be created and told in the time frame that they needed. Yeah. I think destigmatizing too, you know, and it gets easier the longer you do this, but I don't really care what you did to get this rectal forearm body. I don't really care. I come here not to ruin your day, but just to try to help. And you came here for help and that will defuse it. I have the the privilege of coming in after the student, after the resident, in a lot of cases. So again, you guys have done the heavy lifting and I get to come kind of be the big brother who sits in the corner and chats. But I think that I wish someone had told med student me, you're not a detective trying to find people's lies. You're their ally. You are here to help them. You are federally obligated in the U.S. to help these people that show up for help. And there's a joy in that. So I think just letting them know, let's just try to work together. I don't really need the whole story. I just need enough of the story to make sure you're okay. Yeah. And if you haven't figured it out yet as a medical student, let me help give you a shortcut because you can't always do that. Us attendings, we, we actually know that the story is going to change. We've done this for a while now. We expect, actually, it's a red flag for me if the, unless it's the most simple of stories, I fell and twisted my ankle. If there's any meat to the story and it doesn't change between the nurse, the med student, the resident, and myself, it's rehearsed. It's a rehearsed story. And I actually will think about trafficking and you know, non-accidental trauma in kids. Because when the story is that rote, because exactly what, what you're saying, the story changes because you don't realize it. But as a medical student, you're doing a great service to your attending. In most cases, because what you're doing is you're helping the, the, the patient narrow down what we actually care about. So when you go in and you hear all about their chest pain and their difficulty breathing, but yeah, 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 I've also got this swollen toe and one time a chicken ate my finger and whatever it is, right? By the time the resident comes in, they know that you asked a lot of questions about that chest pain. So now when they go in instead of saying, yeah, I had this chest pain, they go, yeah, I had this four out of 10 chest heaviness that didn't go to my jaw. 
And by the, atten- the time the attending comes in, they go, my troponin is positive and I have this unbearable pain, which will not, right? So each step along the way, you refined it. The thing you have to do think about there is making sure that your own biases haven't led because you start the ball rolling. And so if you start us going down a bad trajectory, it can take some time to recover from that. And it will happen, by the way, and it's never an intentional thing. So don't feel bad about it, but watch for opportunities to avoid that. I don't know the author of this quote. You guys have probably heard it, but it's that very few patients woke up today to ruin your day. Those patients do exist, but they're very few and far between. And and similarly, I think the label or even the idea that someone is drug seeking is a way to have a very bad outcome for patients because you know what's really easy to find in anywhere in the U.S. is drugs. You don't have to come register, go through trash to get drugs. You can just buy drugs. And so, yes, we see people who would like drugs. We see people who have problems with drugs. But most of those people are there for another reason. Now, they're not going to necessarily tell you that, but it's they could have gotten fentanyl on the street. They're in here for something else. And that's the it can either eat you up as a clinician or it can actually be kind of the fun part of let's just try to get to that next level of why you're actually here today. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to your first point of, you know, why today? I think one of the things you mentioned, John, that I just wanted to touch on for a second is the situation of where you do have a suspicion that something is fishy, like there may be trafficking or this may have been an abuse situation. How do you get a good history in that scenario if there's someone else in the room? I think the first thing to do is remember that you are a physician or a physician in training and your highest obligation is to help the patient. It's not to be a detective. It's not to be right or wrong. Reporting obligations and legal requirements all fall under the auspices of if you have a suspicion, you report it and then other people do the work and you can focus on taking care of the patient that is in front of you. I do think there are times where things just don't add up, and I use that language very loosely. I will liberally dispense medical hold orders because in the state that I'm in, I'm allowed to do that, and that gives me 23 hours and 59 minutes to sort it out, and that is exactly what I will say to people. When I am checking your child or when I am checking this patient and there's someone else in the room, I ask the things that I ask. And then I I don't just throw it on the nurses to do. I will actually say to them, you know, the situation is very concerning to me. And I don't feel like I've got all of the, the, the pieces together to safely let this patient leave. So the nurses are going to come in and change him into a special gown. And that's just to help us know that this is a patient that before they leave this hospital, I need to see them first. And I explain it that way. It's my job. I, they They can't let them leave unless I see them. And when they kind of, sometimes they'll get bristly, right? And then I just say, hey, you know, actually, if you didn't notice by the five-hour wait, it's actually really, really busy in here. And I'm not saying you would, but sometimes people get very frustrated or they feel like they're not being heard or whatever. And so they'll just decide to leave and, and then no one knows. But this way, everyone around will know that you need to talk to the attending doctor before you can go somewhere. And I just leave it at that. And if they keep digging in, I'll answer questions. But I haven't found anyone yet that really dug past that because I just I don't phrase it in the form of a question. It's just this is how I figure out what's going on because we're all here to help this person. Right. And it's very hard for people not to at least outwardly be on board with that. 
The scenario of someone being in the room with the patient that's making it difficult to get the history is not uncommon, whether it's a family member that insists on being the interpreter or a family member that is answering for the patient, or there's somebody in there and for whatever reason they're compromising the history-taking process. Most of the time, if you ask them to step out, they will. So, you know, I need to talk to the patient privately. I need to do an exam privately. We always ask family members to leave the room when we do this. And then that gives you the opportunity to try to elicit that history if you can. If somebody's digging in and they refuse to leave the room, that can be very, very challenging. I can see how, you know, as a student or even as a resident, How do you navigate that situation so you can then get the history that you need? Typically, what I do at that point is, oh, the patient needs an x-ray. And so the x-ray and radiology is a wonderful place to go without family members where, and, and I just say, you know, I'm sorry you can't come with us. The radiation exposure is dangerous to you. We don't allow family there. So you're going to have to stay here and the patient will go, and the tech will come and take the patient, and then I am marching right behind them so that once they are sequestered over in radiology, I can then try to obtain the history that I need to. But that's a a very challenging situation. Everybody needs a good single-view chest x-ray. Yes, indeed. There are certain cultures where the cultural norm, and actually the patient's preference would be, I had one recently, she wanted her husband to, to speak for her, I'm fine with that, and I want to be sensitive to that. But if you're getting a weird vibe, and I was getting a weird vibe, you can always fall back and blame the system. The system tells us that we're supposed to have translators for people who who aren't comfortable with English. And if your husband wants to answer, that's fine. But that gets you another layer of protection. And I've had a couple of cases where I was pretty sure I was getting one story. You bring in a translator, you actually do get a different story. So it's I, I think that it's a situation that if you're not getting that information from the patient or if there's someone in the room, it might not be nefarious, but it should be you know, a, a low-level red flag that I want to be sure I'm getting the right information using all my tools. Yeah. I like the phrase, the interpreter is actually not for you. The interpreter is for me. And I've had that same patient where I've had an interpreter and the family member was interpreting. And I've had the interpreter interrupt and say, I'm sorry, as the interpreter, doctor, I'd like to let you know that they are not asking the questions that you are asking. And I would like to offer to help. The first time that happened, and and in my head, I thought, well, this is nefarious. It really wasn't. It was actually that the interpreter, the, the family member, didn't understand, because they weren't a medical interpreter, what I was trying to ask. So things, the concept of fevers versus being hot versus chills versus, you know, you ask if someone's had chills and they their their question is, well, have you felt cold? And they go, no, no, but I've been shaking a lot. And then they'll say, no, they haven't felt cold because they don't know that that can be the same thing. It's really fascinating. Well, I thank you guys for coming on today. It's been a great conversation. If you had to give one take-home wrap-up point for med students on this topic, what would it be? Don't let your EMS providers leave without asking questions. And if you can be there when they're giving report, that is the ideal way to get the information and history. They will very much appreciate your presence. Take the time required to get the history that you need. So go in with the mindset that this might take longer than the average emergency department history taking, and that's okay, and everything else can wait, unless it's a cardiac arrest. But 
everything else can wait and give yourself and the patient the opportunity to give you the history that that they need to give you. I'd say just leave ego at the desk. These can be difficult encounters. Don't let them eat at you. We can just double down. I mean, it's not as a med student. As a med student, you're paying to be here. But going forward, this is your job and you get paid to do this. And sometimes we are asked to do things that are hard. Don't take it home with you. Don't take it on the patient. Well, I'd just like to thank you guys for coming on. It's been a great episode. Med Student Over Easy listeners, make sure you check out the blog site for more tips and tricks. Well, thanks for making it all the way to the end of that Med Student Over Easy episode. Don't forget, you can follow us on social media, whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or head on over to our blog, emovereasy.com. Also, don't forget, we are the official podcast for the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. You can learn more about this great organization by heading to acoap.org, where you can find about an upcoming CME event where you might get to see a few of your EM over easy hosts live and in person for a show. Until next time, thanks so much. Mm -hmm.